welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. So please go do that. Also, if you're a listener and you haven't done so, please you know, subscribe, follow us on uh, wherever you're listening to us. Uh, that'd be very, very helpful. Also, leave us a rating and a review if you feel so inclined. Of course, we, you know, we prefer positive ones, but however you feel, just be honest. That's just fine. Um, but anyways, I want to move on. I don't want to take much time at all. Uh, I think this will be a relatively... Uh, short episode. Usually we go like an hour and 45 minutes. This one would be, uh, you know, probably closer to something like an hour and 10. Uh, but, you know, I just wanted to give you a little background on why we're doing this. Uh, I, I, for a while, I've been talking about doing this film noir kind of, you know, medium cool movie lesson of sorts where I was going to go through kind of World War II era film noir and just do this kind of long marathon that would be in parts. Well, you know, uh, this week and last week, I was supposed to be doing the next installments of the Bergman Marathon, but my schedule just couldn't align with Matthew Sosi's. And I've been getting, I've been working on getting a new job, which I did successfully get one. Um, but I, we've also just had family in town, like multi, like through the week and on weekends, and it's just been a lot. And I haven't been able to kind of keep up with as many movies as I want. I don't even think I watched any movies, but like I watched Clue. You know, from like 1985, I watched Clue. That's the only movie I've seen this whole week. You know, probably even the week before, until since I saw Playtime. Anyways, doesn't matter. The point is this. Uh, I've been a little behind on that. So I was like, you know what? This would be a perfect week, though, to just go solo on this and, you know, do the film noir thing that I've always teased and talked about like I was going to do. So I went ahead and finished it. Uh, it's important to know that I've kind of done this over time. All right, so uh, different segments of it are, have been recorded at different times. Um, not that you'll necessarily notice, but uh, you know, I'm sometimes I'm in different moods than others. Okay, so if there's one where I just feel wacky, that's probably why. Uh, but I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you learn something. And if you haven't seen some of these, definitely go check them out. There's not one on the list that I would say is not worth seeing, and some of which I would say are must sees. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I had, I had this whole thing. It's supposed to be a, a bonus content thing. I had the whole thing, uh, recorded pretty much. And so, uh, yeah, I'm just going to play everything I had and you're going to be able to kind of hear what I originally intended to be bonus content. And it's just going to be the main content this week. And, uh, I really hope you like it. So, uh, please hit us up again on social media. It's medium cool pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at, uh, medium at gmail.com and let us know what you think of, of this kind of material. I'd love to know if you're interested in hearing more of this kind of uh, historically based uh, film talk. So anyways, without further ado, here is my you know first installment of the Medium Cool Movie Lesson uh, for the Film Noir Marathon. So let's go. French term, this literal definition means black film, but closer translation would be dark film. The term was coined by French critic Nino Frank in 1946, though this was not a term Americans used to define their dark crime films. That wouldn't happen for quite a while. 
The films Frank and other critics applied this term to had cynical heroes, stark lighting effects, frequent use of flashbacks to tell a story, intricate plots, and an underlying existential philosophy. Now, generally, scholars often start around 1940 to discuss this classic period of noir, and the years we'll be looking at over the course of this marathon are 1940 to 1959, two decades of hard-boiled, wisecracking, black-and-white crime pictures. Today's episode, we're looking at World War II-era pictures, 1941 to 1945. Now, I didn't have any 1940 noirs on the list, like The Letter starring Betty Davis, for example, but I figured World War II years fit nicely. Plus, the you know, The Maltese Falcon from 1941 is arguably the first film to set the style off. Now, let's look back at what was going on during this time in history. It's important to understand that a lot of these movies under the film noir category were adaptations of pulpy crime novels published in the early to mid-1930s. The Maltese Falcon, for example, was published in 1930 during the Prohibition era. Prohibition in the United States was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages and lasted more than a decade from January 17, 1920 to December 5, 1933. Now, this was more than just alcoholics being upset that they couldn't get their scotch and sodas freely. Prohibition changed the culture and gave rise to a lot of crime and historical events. The irony is the law was passed to reduce crime and corruption, solve social problems, reduce the tax burden created by prisons and poorhouses, and improve health and hygiene in America. Now, you know, these were all attributed to alcohol, and this was an absolute failure. Also, consider this. The Great Depression lasted from August 1929 to March 1933, overlapping with Prohibition. The Great Depression was a severe worldwide economic depression that began in the United States. Basically, the authors of these books, these pulpy novels, had a lot to be cynical and dark about. And the filmmakers, actors, and crew that had lived through this too, you know, they were a part of the post-Prohibition, post-Great Depression culture. The darkness of film noir reflected the disenchantment of the times, and pessimism and disillusionment became increasingly present in the American psyche during the Great Depression of the 1930s and the World War that followed. Now, early examples of the World War II era noir style include dark, stylized detective films such as John Huston's The Maltese Falcon from 1941, Frank Tuttle's This Gun for Hire, 1942, Otto Preminger's Laura from 1944, and Edward Dimitrich's Murder My Sweet in 1944. Now, during wartime, these films were banned in occupied countries, but they became available throughout Europe beginning in 1946. Thus, the term film noir from the French, you know, it didn't exist during the world, like World War II. So in 1941, the first film in the marathon is Houston's The Maltese Falcon. The film was released two months before U.S. involvement in World War II, which followed the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So this is technically pre-war for America, but the war had been raging overseas for a couple of years, and America could feel the pressures of that war. Now, as I mentioned before, this is The Maltese Falcon, 1941, written and directed by John Huston, an adaptation from the Dashiell Hammett book, The Maltese Falcon, from 1930. It was the third adaptation following the 1931 film of the same name and 1936's Satan Met a Lady. It was put out by the Warner Brothers Studio and stars Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Gladys George, Peter Lorre, Barton McLean, Sidney Greenstreet, and Ward Bond. 
It premiered October 3rd, 1941, had a budget of $375,000, and it made $1.8 million, which is kind of incredible because you can't even make a movie for $1.8 million hardly anymore. I mean, you have to do something like Paranormal Activity or something to be less than that, it seems. And yet $1.8 million was a huge success then. Now, some of the accolades for The Maltese Falcon. It had three Oscar nominations that year. Roger Ebert selected it for his book series, The Great Movies. And it was cited by Panorama de Film Noir Americain as the first major film noir. Listen, this won't do any good. You'll never understand me, but I'll try once and then give it up. When a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of him. He was your partner, and you're supposed to do something about it. And it happens we're in the detective business. Well, when one of your organization gets killed, it's, it's bad business to let the killer get away with it. Bad all around, bad for every detective everywhere. You don't expect me to think that these things you're saying are sufficient reason for sending me to this. Wait till I'm through, then you can talk. I've no earthly reason to think I can trust you, and if I do this and get away with it, you'll have something on me that you can use whenever you want to. Since I've got something on you, I couldn't be sure that you wouldn't put a hole in me someday. All those are on one side. Maybe some of them are unimportant. I won't argue about that. But look at the number of them. And what have we got on the other side? All we've got is that maybe you love me and maybe I love you. You know whether you love me or not. Maybe I do. I'll have some rotten nights after I've sent you over, but that'll pass. The film follows private detective Sam Spade, famously played by Humphrey Bogart, who takes on a case where he gets involved with three eccentric criminals, a beautiful liar, and their quest for a priceless statuette. The story weaves and winds into a breathtaking mystery. Now, author Dashiell Hammett worked as a private detective for the Pinkerton Detective Agency in San Francisco, Hammett being the author of the original book. So, you know, a lot of this is clearly going to be uh, maybe not autobiographical, but kind of this wish fulfillment, right? That Hammett wishes he could be this hard-boiled and cool. But uh, Samuel, the name Sam Spade, Samuel was apparently Hammett's birth name, actually. And he used it for the protagonist, Sam Spade. So again, clearly autobiographical or, or, or at least wish fulfillment uh, for the film. Now, according to Ruby Belmer in her book, Behind the Scenes, The Making of Hollywood, she discusses director John Huston and how he planned each second of the film to the last detail, tailoring the screenplay with instructions to himself for, you know, a shot for shot setup with sketches for every scene. So, you know, storyboards, basically. Huston wanted his feature debut to be respected and professional. The cast was able to rehearse a lot due to Houston's obsessive preparation, which allowed for those wonderfully rhythmic dialogue sequences where every word seemed to be placed perfectly. Now, Bogart, of course, was great, but not the first choice. Warner Brothers wanted George Raft to play Sam Spade. Raft was, you know, in the original Scarface from 1932, and he was in They Drive by Night. But many films of the time... But apparently Houston said he would have beaten George Raft with brass knuckles to keep him off the set. (laughs) But this film made Bogart. He would go on to do Casablanca in 1942 the following year and become a superstar. 
but his stardom, it began here. Everything down to the lighting and camera angles was intentional for telling the story and portraying the characters. Darkness to emphasize a lack of trust and or ominousness. Everything. The low-key lighting was really great. This is quintessential noir and essential viewing. When I rated it, I rated it 4.5 out of 5. Now, fun fact, one of the prop makers that made the iconic Black Falcon prop for the film, there were actually four Blackbird props total, but his name was Fred Sexton. Now, he's alleged to have been an accomplice in the murder of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. Now, I guess we'll never know for sure, but what an interesting little bit of trivia. After the release of The Maltese Falcon in 1941, the cinematic world was made aware of this sort of hard-boiled crime drama. Variety called it one of the best examples of actionful and suspenseful melodramatic storytelling in cinematic form. The review actually went on to say, quote, Unfolding a most intriguing and entertaining murder mystery, the picture displays outstanding excellence in writing, direction, acting, and editing, combining in all overall as a prize package of entertainment for widest audience appeal, end quote. As of the release of this episode, The Maltese Falcon has a 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so take that for what it's worth. This may not have been the first noir, and it wasn't. But it seems clear to me that it was the first noir to get people's attention to this extent. So in many ways, it kickstarted the genre, or the movement, or the style. We'll cover what film noir is later. But The Maltese Falcon also became the quintessential detective mystery of its kind, kickstarting one of a few prominent tropes of the genre. But for now, we move into 1942, and the war has begun. Paramount Pictures didn't seem to know what they were getting into when they started working on a film adaptation of Graham Greene's 1936 novel, A Gun for Sale. The film was called This Gun for Hire in 1942. And on the poster for the film, top billing went to Veronica Lake, who was super famous, and Robert Preston. Fourth billing went to the actor who played the film's protagonist, Alan Ladd. This tells us Paramount didn't have a ton of faith in Ladd yet, but they would. This Gun for Hire came out in 1942, written and directed by Frank Tuttle. It was an adaptation of A Gun for Sale from 1936 by Graham Greene, as I mentioned before, and there were multiple film adaptations created based on the book before and after 1942. This Gun for Hire was the third, I believe. Now, the studio was Paramount Pictures, starring Veronica Lake, Robert Preston, Laird Krager, and Alan Ladd. It premiered April 24, 1942, and it had a budget of less than $500,000, and it had a, and it made $1 million. Again, this sounds like low numbers for today, but this was a lot. This was really successful. Have you ever seen the love light in a lady's eyes? And then suddenly watch it vanish away. If there's trouble in your love life, well, my friend, get wise, for as we magicians would say. Now you see it, now you don't. It goes hocus pocus, alakazam. That's love. 
Now, the film follows sadistic killer for hire Philip Raven, played by Alan Ladd, who becomes enraged when his latest job is paid off in marked bills. Vowing to track down his double-crossing boss, nightclub executive William Gates, played by Laird, Raven sits beside Gates' lovely new employee, Ellen, played by Veronica Lake, on a train out of town. Although Ellen is engaged to marry the police lieutenant who's hunting down Raven, she decides to you know, try and set the misguided hitman straight as he hides from the cops and plots his revenge. Now, the film introduces us to a different trope here, the semi-sympathetic criminal, rather than the detective mystery we got with the Maltese Falcon. But we'll definitely hear more about this trope as we go forward. Now, Alan Ladd had been a bit player prior to this film. His role as Raven shot him to stardom and introduced audiences to the marginally ambiguous noir anti-hero. He's a heel. Pure and simple. Bad guy. You know, and, and he ultimately remains a bad guy through to the end. But Ladd played the character in such a way that he won the audience's empathy by the end. And I love that Tuttle, the filmmaker, allows Ladd to ultimately stay bad. You know, despite naturally doing some things that ended up being good, you know, good was not his intention. So even if he did something that was beneficial for other characters... It was all with the intention of doing something most people would consider bad, whether it be killing someone, stealing from someone, whatever it is. You know, sometimes it turned out good, but that wasn't his intention, and I love that. It reminds me of something like The Sword of Doom, the the uh, um, Akimoto samurai flick from, I think, 65, if I remember correctly, maybe 66. It's one of my all-time favorite samurai films because it's seriously about a essentially a, a sociopathic like bad guy, and that's who you follow around. He just like murders people, and you know. Um, but it's it's badass because you never see that, and you know you have Toshiro Mifune in it, and and he's the good guy, but he's a side character. He's like the he's the antagonist. It's pretty wild. But this this reminded me of that in the sense that Alan Ladd in this is just a bad dude. Anyways, Robert Preston is the film's moral compass, providing what Raven clearly lacks, but no one cared about his character. (laughs) Michael Crane, no one cared about that character. And it was all about Lake and Ladd. And that duo would go on to uh, make several films together. And what's great is they weren't your warm, happy duo. They were colder, you know, unlike William Powell and Myrna Loy from the pre-code picture The Thin Man in 1934, Lake and Ladd had a different chemistry that resonated with the wartime audience. Now, the film carries a bleak worldview that is kind of shocking, seeing as how filmmakers were expected to provide relief and reassurance to audiences during yet another world war. Uh, Mind you, World War I was in you know, not even 20 years, well, it was 20 years, it was 1916 to 18. That's crazy. So, you know, a lot of people that were alive in World War II lived through another world war. Think about that. It's just really wild. Anyways, you know, this isn't a film full of good and bad. Everyone is a little of both, and some more than others, of course. But innocence doesn't seem to fully exist in Graham Greene's world. It seems like people are either fairly good, bad, or downright evil. This movie is also extremely pulpy. We get into hard-boiled, concentrated noir. From the dialogue to the twists and turns, it's everything you need for a genre picture, and I feel like some people don't like this movie as much, 
uh, or you know they don't consider it quite as you know pulpy and noir. But I don't see that. I feel really great about it, and that's why I rated this film a four out of five. Now, the same year in 1942, Stuart Heisler puts out another Lad and Lake production, and it's called The Glass Key. It's written and directed again by Stuart Heisler. It's an adaptation of The Glass Key, the Dashiell Hammett book from 1931, and it's the second film adaptation after the 1935 version. Again, the studio was Paramount Pictures. It starred top bill Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake, as well as Brian Dunleavy. It premiered October 21st, 1942, and though I don't know the budget, the box office made over $700,000, which is also, again, really good. Paul says you're feeling much better, Mr. Beaumont. They say I'll be able to set up by the first of the year. Paul says you'll be out in a week. Sounds like you've been seeing a lot of Paul. Let's don't talk about Paul. What do we talk about? You. Comfortable here? More or less. No fun. No fun. Hasn't your uh, nurse been treating you well? Not as well as I'd like. Poor boy. If I'd known you were being neglected, I would have come sooner. What's this I heard about coming sooner? The film begins with a crooked political organizer and crime boss, Paul Madvig, who finds himself being accused of murder by fellow gangster Nick Varna, whom he refused to help during a re-election campaign. Alan Ladd plays Ed Beaumont, our protagonist, and Madvig's right-hand man, and we spend the rest of the film watching everything Ed goes through to protect his friend Madvig. Now, Madvig decided to support reform candidate Governor Ralph Henry because he loves Henry's daughter, Janet, played by Veronica Lake. Ed does not trust Henry or his daughter and fears they'll take advantage of his friend. The problem grows when Madvig tells Nick that he is cleaning up the city and that Nick will no longer receive protection from the police. And in that moment, Ed grows even more concerned. While all of this is going on, Madvig's daughter, Opal, is secretly dating Henry's son, Taylor. And unfortunately, early on, Taylor is killed, and thus the downward spiral begins as we watch a series of conflicts unravel. With tensions this high, what will Ed do to survive? Well, you know, while I was watching this movie, I was reminded of the Coen Brothers movie Miller's Crossing, and Madvig reminded me of Albert Finney's Leo in that movie. Uh, Beaumont reminded me of Gabriel Byrne's Tom, and uh, William Bendix uh, played Jeff, the muscle-headed crony, and he was reminiscent of Mike Starr's Frankie in Miller's Crossing. Uh, Joseph Kalea's Nick is, you know, uh, John Polito's Casper in in the uh, Coen Brothers film, Uh, and, you know, then I learned that Miller's Crossing is loosely based on the very same Hammett novel, Uh, as this. So, uh, you know, though the two films are very different, uh, the narrative similarities are undeniable. Hammett was the quintessential book-to-screen pulp writer in Hollywood back then, and his cynical worldview and dark storylines define the film noir crime genre. As far as, you know, the book goes, there are many readers who prefer The Glass Key to The Maltese Falcon, actually, including Hammett himself, though... That doesn't seem to translate to viewers feeling that way about the films. It was the wild success of The Maltese Falcon in 1941 that led to Paramount making The Glass Key, seeing as how The Glass Key had not been hugely successful uh, in adaptations from the past. 
probably because those earlier adaptations didn't have Lad and Lake. As I mentioned before, they were this cool and sexy duo for the time, I guess. But one of the criticisms of the film I often see is the script is not as snappy or aggressive as the book. And as I've said many times, I don't care. Though, had I read the book beforehand, maybe I would, but I don't now. Uh, You know, I, I didn't read it before, and, you know, the film was really great. (laughs) Uh, I really did like it a lot. It has, you know, death and double crosses, gangsters, cronies, and a great film fatale. It's fantastic. And, you know, could it be better? Sure. Would it be better if it matched the book? Maybe, but I don't think that's the only road to success. They are two different mediums, and I think that director Stuart Heisler, you know, does a good job at creating a hard-boiled crime story, and I think it's really wonderful. I give this film a four out of five And uh, honestly, I really, really enjoyed this movie. But that about wraps up 1942 for this marathon, and that moves us on to 1943. And by the summer of 1943, British and American forces had defeated the Italians and Germans in North Africa. The bloody Battle of Stalingrad, which had some of the fiercest combat in World War II, led to a victory for the Allied forces. And, you know, the, the approach of winter, along with the dwindling food and medical supplies, spelled the end for the German troops there. And, you know, they they surrendered at the beginning of 1943. Things were turning around in the war, but we weren't out of it yet. That said, there were changes happening in cinema too. The studio RKO had been making some relatively low-budget horror movies to compete with the success of Universal, who had, uh, in the 1930s, uh, and up to this point, pretty much ran the horror genre. And Val Luton was at the head of the RKO Pictures. He and his crew made Cat People in 1942, I Walk with the Zombie in 1943, and The Leopard Man in 1943 as well, all of which had made money at the box office. But it was time to inject a little noir into Luton's next horror endeavor with his next film, The Seventh Victim, from 1943, directed by Mark Robson, uh, produced by Val Luton, who, as I said, you know, created The Body Snatcher, starring Boris Karloff. Uh, you know, he. Uh, this was an RKO picture starring Kim Hunter, Tom Conway, and Gene Brooks. It premiered August 21st, 1943, and though I don't know the budget uh, or the box office for this film, uh, you know, this was the first film for producer Val Luton that did not turn a profit at the box office, which I find very interesting. In her on-screen debut, Kim Hunter plays Mary Gibson, an orphan attending a boarding school paid for by her older sister. However, she sets off to find her sibling once the funds dry up. Mary sets off in search of her missing sister and uncovers a satanic cult in New York's Greenwich Village. Of course it's in Greenwich Village. (laughs) She finds that this cult may have something to do with her sibling's random disappearance. Amidst its disturbing and bleak tone exists a wonderful, low-budget horror noir. This is cool because Val Luton had complete autonomy over the B-pictures he made for RKO, but within a few guidelines the studio put in place. First, the movies had to be made for less than $150,000. Second, you know, they had to be shorter than 75 minutes, 
And third, RKO had the right to choose the titles of the films, but not the stories, just the titles. Accepting these constraints, Luton built a crack team of A-list talent, even if their names were not yet A-list at the time. The original idea for the plot of The Seventh Victim was the search for an orphan lost in Los Angeles, and the film revolved around finding the orphan to avoid them from becoming the seventh victim of the title. But Luton moved the plot cross-country to Greenwich Village and brought Satan into the mix. (laughs) Charles O'Neill and DeWitt Bodine ended up writing the final script for the picture, and Bodine brought in the New York aspects of the film, inserting personal experiences he had, including coming across a genuine satanic society when he was a playwright. Luton had worked with acclaimed filmmaker Jacques Tourneur on Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, but he had decided to use Mark Robson this time. Luton and Robson had worked together as producer and editor, respectively, and Robson was assistant editor on the Orson Welles films Citizen Kane from 1941 and The Magnificent Ambersons in 1942. But some might argue Robson didn't always make the best decisions. Val E. Luton, the son of the famous producer, said director Mark Robson you know, had made a lot of editing decisions, and his choices to edit down key scenes undermined the story. For example, Val E. thought, you know, the last shot of the film should have been held longer to force the audience to consider the grave nature of the ending and allow it to set in longer. This may sound like a perfectionist nitpicky BS kind of stuff, you know, uh, but I agree personally. The ending is dark, and when you think about it, you know, it, it kind of blows my mind that it was even released. If you haven't seen it, you'll have to check it out because, like I said, it, it's there's some moments in it that are so dark, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, this could only be a B picture, you know, to get past. The film has, you know, a suicide in it, Satanism, murder, a creepy atmosphere, even, you know, its uh, share of subtext. Uh, so subtextual that it passes uh, right under the nose of the production code. For example, Jacqueline, played by Jean Brooks, and Francis, played by Isabel Jewell, are clearly more than friends, but it's quite a B picture. However, the end is criminally rushed. I don't know if it's because of this 75-minute limit that they had or what, but it is criminally rushed because the film itself is pretty cool. But regardless of how conceptually awesome the ending is, uh, you don't feel as much watching it as you should. Producer Val Luton was a master at producing pictures with atmosphere and building tension with unseen threats, an easy way to get around budgetary restrictions while being creative and making scary movies. His first feature for RKO was Cat People, where, you know, we only get creative silhouettes and shadows, etc., to convey the horror, yet it's still effective. You never see the transformation, which infuriated RKO executive Charles Kroner, um, you know, who expected cat people to compete with Universal's The Wolfman, for example. But in The Seventh Victim, Luton did the same thing. It's the unseen devil. And I'm a huge supporter of the less is more approach to horror, and Luton is an early master of it. Italian-born cinematographer Nicholas Masaraka worked on five films with Luton, Cat People, The Seventh Victim, The Ghost Ship, The Curse of the Cat People, and Bedlam. He also photographed Jacques Tourneur's uh, noir classic Out of the Past, uh, but we'll get to that another time. The visual style of noir is probably the most universally recognized attribute, and Masaraka's approach 
uh, could be described as you know a high noir style. He works in shadow, high contrast lighting, etc., and the grim bleakness of his photography is certainly present here. And you know, while we're talking about the shooting scenes, there is also a scene in the film that predates Hitchcock's famous shower scene by 17 years, and I'll just leave it vague there. As the, for the cast, this was Tim Conway's third Luton horror picture, essentially a regular by this point. Kim Hunter was found during a Pasadena Playhouse production of Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, her crippling stage fright was no secret, but she clearly overcame it to be here in her first film. Uh, I actually really appreciate this film, and Val Luton is a great producer. I gave this film a three and a half out of five. Please go check out The Seventh Victim. But that's not all. We have a whole nother year to cover here in 1944. June 6, 1944 would forever be known as D-Day when the Allies landed at, uh, you know, 156,000 British, Canadian, and American soldiers on the beaches of Normandy, France. This was depicted in the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, for example, and unfortunately, I'm sure it was much, much worse in real life. 4,414 Allied sources were confirmed killed in the D-Day invasion, and that's 4,000 families who lost loved ones within a 24-hour period. This had to have a massive effect on society. And one month to the day, a film would come along that changed the film noir genre forever and would appeal to a grieving nation. Billy Wilder was an Austrian-born filmmaker that would build his legacy in the U.S. He fled his homeland in 1933 once the Nazi party came into power. And once he gained American citizenship in 1939, Wilder put out his first successful screenplay for Ninochka in 1939. Uh, Wilder went on to direct two films, The Major and the Minor in 1942 and Five Graves to Cairo in 1943, but it wasn't until 1944 that Wilder would truly become a major name in the Hollywood system. That was the time Billy Wilder directed Double Indemnity. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. It was co-written and uh, oh, it was just co-written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, the novelist. Uh, it was adapted from the story by James M. Kane in 1943, named Double Indemnity as well. And uh, Paramount Pictures had bought the rights to the book, and the film starred Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. It premiered July 6th, 1944, according to IMDb, and the budget was about $980,000, but the box office was $5 million. In 1944, that is a smash success for the time. The film is about a rich woman and a calculating insurance agent who plot to kill her unsuspecting husband after he signs a double indemnity policy. Against a backdrop of distinctly Californian setting, uh, the partners in crime plan the perfect murder, so to speak, to collect the insurance, which pays double if the death is accidental. 
Double Indemnity was, you know, about as hard-boiled as they came to, you know, at that point uh, in time. And if you're a fan of noir, historically, this is a must-see. I saw Double Indemnity in a film noir course I took as a senior in college. And, you know, I liked noir at the time, but I was largely blind to most of it. It was a blind spot for me, the classic noir. So we watched about 30 movies that semester and discussed them and, you know, wrote about them. And it was absolutely awesome. I look back so fondly of that. Shout out to Rob, uh, Robert Muggy, uh, Bob Muggy. He's an awesome dude. He put on this class. So Double Indemnity, however, was not my favorite. I actually wasn't very impressed, uh, you know, when compared to a lot of the other films that we watched, especially some of the B pictures that I really thought took far more risks and experimented with the genre a lot better. Uh, you know, um, a privilege that later films would have once the characteristics were well established in the 1940s, including the undisputable influence of Double Indemnity. Watching this film again, I appreciated it so much more. This is the film that kick-started the film noir movement. Not as in it's the first film noir, no, no, no. But uh, the one that kicked off the trend. And it is clear when watching it, you can tell why. This is the first one that I've watched in the marathon up to this point that we've talked about that felt so deeply genre, but also felt masterfully executed thanks to Wilder and Chandler's excellent script and the former's direction. Apparently, Billy Wilder wanted to try his hand at something like Hitchcock, something other than comedy, presenting a, uh, a film with some real bravura. And uh, there are scenes that reminded me of Hitchcock, actually. Uh, not exactly, but in essence. There's a, a scene with Walter, played by Fred McMurray, who tells Miss Dietrich, who's uh, Stanwyck, to secretly come up to his apartment and not to be seen. But as soon as they hang up the phone... Keys, played by Edward G. Robinson, knocks on the door. Now, the tension hit me instantly, like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh, shit. You know, sitting here watching it, and it was just masterfully executed because you're just waiting for Stanwyck to walk up the stairs secretly and walk into the room while you have this other, you know, guy that is trying to basically figure out what's going on, right? I mean, he he's kind of the detective, even though he's not a real detective. He's kind of like an insurance detective. Anyways, I'm digressing here. You know, it felt like a Hitchcock move. And, uh, you know, maybe something like Rope from 1948 or something. But anyways, I, you know, I really liked this picture this time, aside from a few outdated moments, like when Walter, you know, casually uses the term colored when referring to his housekeeper. This was, of course, vocabulary that I'm fully aware was standard for the time, but it just doesn't age well, of course. Uh, but this is, you know, this has great genre performances, wonderful plot twists, drowning in hard-boiled crime, and it shows that Billy Wilder has something special, and I'm so glad that he was later acknowledged as the master he was. That said, I was really happy to see a lot of people felt the same as me about Double Indemnity. The first time they saw it, they weren't super high on it. But then, you know, saw it later in life, and it just connected for some reason. And I don't know what it is about, you know, the second viewing, but it really, you know, it really worked for me here. Uh, if you care about such things, it has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the late, great Roger Ebert considered it one of the great movies and opened his retro review of the film uh, by quoting Stanwyck, saying, No, I never loved you, Walter. Not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart. I used you 
just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me, until a moment ago, when I couldn't fire that second shot. And Eber goes on to write, Is she kidding? Walter thinks so when he says, Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. The puzzle of Billy Wilder's double indemnity, the enigma that keeps it new, is what these two people really think of one another. They strut through the routine of a noir murder plot with the tough talk and the cold sex play, but they never seem to really like each other all that much, and they don't even seem to be crazy about the money either. What are they after? The film actually has a depth I missed the first time around. There's a lot going on with these characters, and it's all mostly easy to overlook. One can easily watch this as a surface-level crime story, but, you know, it really is so much more. And, you know, then there is another community out there of people that feel like Double Indemnity is just too A-list, feeling like, you know, it feels like a bigger studio picture and less like the superior B-noirs that were coming out at the time. Now, I love the B-pictures, you know, stuff like Night in the City and Pick Up on South Street, you know, uh, stuff like that. I love those movies even more than Double Indemnity. (laughs) You know, like, like those movies are my bread and butter, but they are you know, uh, Double Indemnity, rather, is surprisingly cooler than I gave it credit. And I would encourage you, if you feel like you are a part of that community, try to give it give it a shot. You know, remember that this is the movie that made this movement of film noir uh, way bigger and pretty much made it possible. But this is where it all started. It's not the first film noir, as I mentioned before, but it is the one that kicked off the genre big time. Writer and host of TCM's Noir Alley, uh, Eddie Muller, uh, called this film the essential noir. Now, up to this point, I totally agree. And historically, definitely in the conversation for sure. It definitely holds its place. But I have some other favorites that I'll highlight as we go into future installments that I think are very essential. However, we're going to stick to double indemnity here. Double Indemnity not only won over critics then and now, but you can see it by the box office numbers that audiences loved it too. This lit a fire under the asses of the studio execs to make more of these crime pictures cementing noir as a movement with a pulse. The co-writing credit between Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler is interesting. In 1934, the Great Depression was in full effect, Former newspaper writer and fledgling screenwriter James M. Kane wrote a novel called The Postman Always Rings Twice, the source material for the famous noir to come. The book was a surprising bestseller, but the production code would not allow a film version of this stark novel about the you know, premeditated murder of a husband by his adulterous wife and her lover. MGM wanted it, but it just didn't happen. In 1943, Kane released a different version of the story in a three-part collection called Three of a Kind, and screenwriter Billy Wilder uh, had started directing movies by this point. Again, like I mentioned before, comedies like The Major and the Minor or the World War II drama uh, Five Graves to Cairo. I said comedies like The Major and the Minor. He only did The Major and the Minor and Five Graves to Cairo. But anyways, uh, you know, Wilder was interested in creating something that was not only provocative, being the provocateur he is, or was, rather, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, he wanted to rival the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, in terms of building a thriller that really captured his audience. 
Apparently, a Paramount exec gave Wilder a copy of Three of a Kind and told him one of the stories might fit, you know, what he was aiming to do. So Wilder gave it to his secretary to read, and allegedly she found a uh, she was found in a bathroom stall after missing for a while. She was just devouring this book, caught up in its story about murder, sex, money, romance, and or the lack thereof. And that sold the story of Double Indemnity to Wilder. Screenwriting collaborator Charles uh, Brackett was not so keen on the novel, feeling like Kane's work was too vulgar for his taste, so he refused to do the job. But, you know, this shook Wilder, understandably, because he was used to writing with a colleague, and a writer's process is sacred. Wilder was introduced to Raymond Chandler, a mid-50s alcoholic who had been fired from prior jobs for his addiction, and he was a pulp writer and was, you know, a snide, sarcastic man, something Wilder was drawn to. One area Wilder would show his mastery is with dialogue, both the words on the page and how he directed actors to say it. He and Chandler both felt like Kane sucked at dialogue, so they had a starting point, you know. As uh, they began to dig into the source material, they quickly realized that they were very different workers. Chandler was a man who liked to work in solitude with a typewriter and a bottle of booze. Wilder, on the other hand, was a wild man, you know, the life of the party. They could not be more different, and they hated each other. But in a few weeks, they had pieced together the screenplay that would go on to revolutionize the film noir movement. Like many noirs that we will see later, this is a film where the two main characters are bad people. Cold, cunning liars. They're driven by lust, greed, and the perfect crime, so to speak. You know, no one had ever seen anything like this at the time, at least in the U.S., Wilder loved that he was sticking his nose up at the production code, challenging its morals and ideas of decency and creating something in the other direction. Barbara Stanwyck, the lead actress in the film, uh, you know, who had just come off the success of comedies like The Lady Eve and Ball of Fire, you know, and though she tried to get out of playing a cold, calculated killer, she added femme fatale to her resume. And Fred McMurray was also known for his lighthearted characters, and uh, this established his versatility. Wilder and Chandler parted as enemies after the film was made, and Wilder never invited Chandler to the Oscar ceremony that they were nominated for so many awards, you know, which caused a lasting grudge between the two. You know, though the film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay, Wilder would win Best Director and Best Screenplay the following year for his film, The Lost Weekend, about an alcoholic writer inspired by his time with Chandler. But we'll cover that in a later installment. Thus, the film noir movement began. Now, what I love about Double Indemnity is, you know, it was an early example of a film that reached its audience and showed the audiences that, you know, they didn't have to be patronized by the uplifting moral judgments, you know, and taught to how to think, feel, and behave. People can enjoy stories and prove that they can place their own judgments there without being tainted by these, these risque stories. It is, however, you know, criminal that Edward G. Robinson was not up for any of the seven Oscar nominations because his uh, supporting role is absolutely fantastic. Also important to mention the music by composer Miklos Rosa, uh, cinematographer John uh, Seitzem, uh, producer Joe Sistrom, and just the stellar cast. This film is truly a marvel. I rated it four and a half out of five. 
It is not as perfect for me as it is for other people, but I do think it is an absolute grand slam. Four and a half out of five. Love it. But that moves us on to another familiar name. And that familiar name, at least to any cinephile, is Fritz Lang. Uh, director Fritz Lang did Ministry of Fear in 1944. It was written by Setanai Miller, an adaptation of The Ministry of Fear in 1943, uh, written by Graham Greene, the original uh, novel. Uh, Paramount Pictures had bought the rights to this, so they put it out, and they hired a pretty cool cast starring you know, uh, Ray Milland, uh, Marjorie Reynolds, and Carl Esmond. It premiered May 19th, 1944 in the UK, and then later uh, in January uh, on the 4th in 1945 here in the US. And the film is about Stephen Neal, who is released into World War II England after two years in an asylum, uh, but it doesn't seem so sane outside either. On his way back to London to rejoin civilization, he stumbles across a murderous spy ring, sinister seances, and a cake that everyone seems to want so bad, they'll kill for it. After a series of events, Stephen doesn't quite know to whom he can or should turn. Now, Fritz Lang is a master. Let's get that out of the way. I mean, he made some of, I would argue, the greatest films of all time, and he made some great noirs. Unfortunately, Ministry of Fear largely suffers from outdated cliches even of the time, not unlike other great masters, like Hitchcock, for example. Hitchcock had some, you know, played out ideas that don't really age very well. Uh, so, you know, for example, my cinematic bane is forced romances. If you have a forced romance, I will probably knock you down a peg. Speaking of Hitchcock, Notorious, which is a great film, but that romance is fucking stupid, okay? And it really pulls that film down for me. I'm still going to buy the Criterion version, but whatever. So, uh, Ministry of Fear has a pretty bad one. <laughs> All right. Another common issue with films uh, of the time is an abrupt ending. And luckily, I can fill in the blanks, you know, and I can fill it in so, you know, it doesn't usually bother me that bad. But this is one that ends pretty jarringly, kind of out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, this is like to a fault, okay? So that said, uh, you know, the, the film is not perfect, it is not bad either. It's just there are a few kind of glaring issues that I have that are go beyond kind of pet peeves to me. I actually think just as a film, it suffers. But there are some really great aspects to it, like cinematographer Henry Sharp beautifully executes Lang's vision with smooth movements and stylized lighting, and the sets, holy shit, guys, what awesome sets this movie has. I really, really love them. They are gorgeous and fun to watch the actors kind of navigate. Uh, the performances are wonderful, you know, minus Marjorie Reynolds, who I think has an absolutely atrocious Austrian accent, uh, but seriously, this movie kind of rules in many aspects. Uh, the mystery is compelling, and it kept me strung along, um, and the film incorporates the fears of the times. Like most early noir, it's filmed during World War II, so the plot contains... Uh, this one specifically, at least, contains Nazi-related content without being just another Nazi-related movie. All in all, I really enjoyed the first viewing, because this was my first time seeing this, uh, Ministry of Fear, and I look forward to seeing more of the uh, Lang Noir films that you know I haven't made a priority in the past that I plan to now, but... Ministry of Fear was one of Lang's, you know, American pictures after he had fled Germany to 
avoid the Nazi party, you know. And Lang wanted to buy the rights to the book himself because, you know, he had wanted to make it, adapt it for years. Unfortunately, Paramount Pictures had already bought the rights before Lang could, but fortunately for Lang, they asked him to direct. But Lang, again, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, Lang was disappointed when they wouldn't let him write the screenplay, but rather had Setnai Miller write it. Now, uh, this brought forth tension because, you know, Miller and Lang had very different ideas of how the story should be told. Miller often won their arguments because not only was he the studio-sanctioned writer, but he was also the, one of the film's producers. But Ministry of Fear was largely dismissed when it came out in 1944, receiving a pretty neutral response. Uh, you know, despite that, the film allegedly did really well in the box office, though I have I haven't found any exact numbers that I can share with you, but based on everything that I've read, it still did well in the box office. It's just people weren't like super in love with it. But this was likely due to the popularity of uh, the the this in that <laughs> aspect is the you know it did well at the box office. That was probably likely due to the popularity of the lead actor Ray Milland, uh, you know, as most of his films did well during that time. Now, you know, Lang, however, did not like Ray Milland or his film Ministry of Fear. He hated the studio editions, like The Happy Ending, which I already criticized. It absolutely sucks. Um, you know, he did, however, like Dan Duryea's performance as Cost, uh, one of the characters. And, you know, Lang would go on to use him in the next two films he did, The Woman in the Window, which we'll talk about shortly from 1944, uh, same year, and then Scarlet Street, which came out post-war. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to watch the Criterion Collections version, uh, the Blu-ray of Ministry of Fear, which has absolutely a, an absolutely gorgeous restoration. Uh, so definitely, definitely check that out. I give the film a four out of five. I actually really like this. I have a few friends that don't like this movie, uh, but I got into it. There was enough there that I could find, you know, quite a bit to like about it, actually. Now, the problem I've told you, you know, it's all about the journey, not the destination here. And I'll say that a few more times, I guarantee. But what I mean by that when it comes to noir is it's it, it's all about the mystery. It's not so much about how it ends, unless it's really terrible. You know what I mean? Uh, like the Ministry of Fear ending sucks. But sometimes the rewatchability of these films, because you already know the mystery, unless it is done so expertly well... Um, you know, it's sometimes it kind of loses some of its its gusto, I guess. And I do fear that Ministry of Fear would only go down, uh, you know, uh, as far as my rating and stuff. Uh, but I, I stand here and I support my rating at four out of five. So I hope you could check that out. We have a few more titles for you in 1944. And I'm going to start uh, with the last three here. Uh, the first of the last three here is Laura. From 1944, directed by Otto Preminger, written by Jay Drattler, Samuel Hoffenstein, and Elizabeth Reinhardt. Uh, it was adapted from a novel of the same name in 1930 by Vera Caspare. Uh, and uh, the, it was a 20th Century Fox film starring Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, Vincent Price, and Judith Anderson. And it premiered November 1944. I could not find an exact date. Um, but it 
premiered in November. And the film, you know, basically follows a New York City Police Department detective, Mark McPherson, who is investigating the murder of a highly successful advertising executive, Laura Hunt, killed with by a shotgun blast to the face, everybody. A shotgun blast to the face that happened just inside the doorway of her apartment. However, after investigating several suspects, Mark finds Laura alive and falls in love with the woman whose murder he is investigating. If, uh, if it's not Laura, who is dead? Who killed her? And why? And that is part of the fun of this movie. Uh, first off, Vincent Price is in this, so that rules. I was so surprised. I had seen this before, but I was so surprised. I completely forgot Price was in this. And he's great. You know, he's not hes not that kind of campy, you know, schlocky kind of uh, Vincent Price, whom I also love. He's like proper acting here. And it's, it's pretty funny to see him in this role, but it's also pretty great. Uh, but this film, uh, you know, as a whole is a lot more than your average whodunit film noir. It's subversive and clever. The cinematography is beautiful, the performance are classic, and the writing is really exceptional. It's not easy to have a whodunit detective story that still, to this day, feels fresh. Yet this film from 1944 did so before 70-plus years' worth of other whodunits made those plots cli- like those plots cliche (laughs) like all for the last 70 years you have all of these whodunit plots and these like noirs and neo-noirs and it just feels cliche now this movie still holds up man plot wise each time i watch laura i forget the twist in the middle to be vague for anybody who hasn't seen it and it makes me smile every time it's just so simple but unexpected despite the fact that i've seen it before uh gene tierney plays laura and i'd love I just love that this is a femme fatale we've really never seen before up to this point, at least. And I'm not sure we have since exactly. Um, So, you know, also kudos to the author, Vera Caspare, uh, for writing the story because, you know, the screenwriters just had great source material to work with to turn this in to a really, truly fine film. Uh, part of what makes Laura so good is its blend of mystery, romance, and obsession. Otto Preminger both produced the directed, uh, both produced and directed this film. Sorry, so you know a large part of the praise goes to his contributions here. Uh, but this was not always the plan. Preminger was actually only supposed to produce, and Ruben Mullian was set to direct. And uh, he had directed movies like the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and The Mask of Zorro from 1940. Uh, Shortly after things started to move forward, though, Priminger and Mamoulian were at odds and neither one willing to let up. They disagreed about the cast, the story, almost everything. And vice president of production at Fox, Daryl Zanuck, I'm sure if you're a film fan, you've heard of Zanuck, um, you know, he gave Priminger permission to fire Mamoulian and eventually permitted Priminger to direct. Um, Gene Tierney had been in other films prior to Laura, but it was Laura that truly put her on the map. Clifton Webb, who's a fascinating character, not only that, but he's just great here. You know, he plays Waldo Lydecker, and uh, uh, he had primarily been uh, a stage actor prior to Laura, but then was thrust into the film business after. Zanuck didn't understand 
you know, the use of Webb and ultimately was against it because he said, but he's gay. Uh, uh, Zanuck didn't understand how we were supposed to buy this effeminate man as a lover to, you know, the to a woman. Uh, however, his character role is one of the all-time greats, and I love uh, Webb's performance here, regardless of Zanuck's prejudice. Uh, this just adds to the many different things that stretched the production code at the time. So uh, Vera Caspare is an interesting part of the story, too, because the author of the source material, you know, uh, for Laura, her, her goal as an author was just to be a serious novelist, not a pulp writer or the creator of murder mysteries, per se. Her goal was to be like this ambitious writer, you know, just to do more. She wanted to do more with her writing skills, and she wanted to write a story with multiple narrators, some of which unreliable, but she wanted the book to ultimately ask the reader, who do you believe? It was basically four first-person stories, and at a cocktail party in Hollywood years later, after she'd written the, uh, the book, she met another writer named Steve Fisher, who wrote a novel with an awesome title. It was called I Woke Up Screaming. I gotta read this novel just for the title. And, uh, you know, it was also turned into a film in 1941, which I actually haven't seen, uh, but it uses some of, like, the noir style. I don't, I don't think it's a noir, but, you know, you can see kind of aspects of that. This book by Fisher is what inspired Caspare to write her book, Laura. So I found that really interesting, and though it was a hugely successful film, uh, it had a bit of a tortured production history. Now, re remember when I said that, you know, Priminger and Mamoulian, the, the former original director, uh, you know, they had, uh, you know, beef with each other and Zanuck ended up allowing Priminger to fire him? Well, Priminger and Zanuck had differing opinions of what Laura would be, too. Priminger was uh, an Austrian filmmaker who came to America from Germany after, you know, working with the uh, UFA studio, who also employed at different times Billy Wilder, Ernest Lubitsch, uh, Fred Zinnemann, and uh, Fritz Lang, who, whom uh, we've talked about. Uh, Priminger was also an actor, you know, so, so he had all of this, this background. You know, he studied with the famous show producer for film and stage, Max Reinhardt. And, you know, all this to say, you know, he had a lot in his arsenal, right? And Zanuck did not like Priminger, despite giving him the reins for the picture. He despised him. But this is the way the cookie crumbles, so to speak. And uh, uh, some would call it, you know, uh, some would say that it basically became lightning in a bottle here. Laura has become an undisputed classic. The music by David Raskin, the wonderful performances by the lead cast, it's just one of my favorite noirs. Now, this movie is great. And as I said, you know, it's not only one of my favorite noirs, but to add, it's my favorite of this installment of the marathon. More than Maltese Falcon, more than Double Indemnity, Laura is my favorite on this list. I'm not even done yet, but just FYI, uh, I really love this one. And uh, I look forward to, you know, uh, covering more that are this good because I will but make sure you check out Laura if you haven't or if you have rewatch it I give it a four and a half out of five again it's not so much that it's perfect but man it is really really great but that leads us on to our last two here we're going to be revisiting a name we've already talked about and that's Fritz Lang 
Uh, he directed a film in 19, another film in 1944 called The Woman in the Window, written by Nunnally Johnson. It was an adaptation of a, uh, of a piece called Once Off Guard by J.H. Wallace. It was an RKO picture, and it uh, starred Edward G. Robinson, Joan Bennett, Raymond Massey, and Dan Duryea. The film was released November 3rd, 1944, and it follows a college professor, Richard Wanley, played by Robinson, uh, who sends his wife and two children off on a vacation. And then he goes to a club to meet his friends. And the next, next door to the club, Wanley sees a striking oil portrait of a beautiful woman named Alice Reed in the storefront window. He and his friends talk about how beautiful the painting is and its subject. And, you know, when he leaves the club again, Wanley stops at the portrait and meets the subject in real life. Because Reed is standing near the painting of herself, watching people gaze at it. Reed convinces Wanley to join her for drinks, and from there, the seductive woman gets the innocent professor mixed up in a murder. Fritz Lung's, um, uh, I never know what to call him. Some people pronounce it Fritz Lang. Some people pronounce it Fritz Lang. Lang sounds so American to me, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I say Fritz Lang, so bear with me here. If you have any beef with it, you can hit us up on social media. Anyways, Fritz Lang's uh, The Woman in the Window has all of the ingredients for an exceptional film. Great direction by Lang. Great cinematography by Milton Krasner. Uh, a great screenplay by Nunnally Johnson. It's all there, but the film's ending. It's one of those endings, an ending so cliched that it nearly tanks the entire film. This is a quote by uh, Sirah993 on Letterboxd, and it just really summed up exactly how I feel about this film. I think there is so much to love here, um, but man, well, I'll get there. Anyways, for the most part, I agree with Sirah993. Uh, the end is pretty bad by today's standards. Quite frankly, it's pretty bad, period. But at the time, I could see people being kind of like, ooh, you know, kind of weird. It's so bad now, though, like real bad. Uh, because we've seen it used too many times to get out of making tougher character decisions or to pull the rug out from under the audience for no real reason. I can't help but think how cool this ending would be in 1944, though. Uh, unfortunately, it's 2021, and it's lazy as heck. So, uh, you know, it doesn't ruin the film, I don't think, but, you know, it's... I mean, it is only like the last three minutes or so, after all, but... Uh, there is a four-star movie here, at least somewhere, that is really kind of brought down by the end, and we'll get to my rating here shortly. Edward G. Robinson is really great here, too. Uh, that really needs to be said. And uh, An academic everyman, you know, rather than a criminal or a tough guy or a detective, Robinson has great reserve as Professor Richard Wanley, and uh, it's worth seeing. Now, Double Indemnity, Laura... Phantom Lady, and the next film we're going to talk about here in a moment, Murder, My Sweet, were all released this same year, in 1944, and all of which arguably have some overlapping themes, but, you know, all of them did very well in the box office. They all contributed to the motion by studios to create darker, riskier films. Four of the five films I mentioned above, uh, and the film we're discussing now, uh, Woman in the Window, were directed by immigrant directors, uh, you know, Billy Wilder, Otto Preminger, Robert Siadmak, and Fritz Lang. Uh, Lang was the only established veteran filmmaker of the bunch, seeing as how, you know, the rest 
had uh, pretty early, they were early in their careers. And despite Lang's track record with great films like Metropolis from 1927 or M from 1931, he struggled to work consistently in America. He had a reputation for being arrogant, autocratic in style, a big spender, and hard on his cast and crew. So luckily, Lang was able to continue making movies because he had a few friends in high places that really appreciated his work. So I'm glad that this was made despite hating the end so much. If I mention that, the end sucks. Anyways, so <laughs> The Woman in the Window changed the typecasting of Edward G. Robinson's career as well. Uh, you know, Robinson was born in Romania under the name Emanuel Goldenberg. And, uh, you know, uh, but he was also, you know, raised in Manhattan's Lower East Side. He skyrocketed to fame after his performance as Rick, uh, Rick. Uh, Rico Bendello in uh, Little Caesar from 1931. And, you know, this is relevant because, you know, it typecast him as this kind of banty rooster tough guy. But in The Woman in the Window, Robinson is transformed by this exhibition of versatility here. Whereas, you know, the same year he played a solid, less aggressive than his typecast side role, uh, but still pretty tough uh, in Wilder's Double Indemnity. But here he plays what people would consider a weak, passive character, opposing that reputation he has. And many of Robinson's peers would say this closer is actually closer to his true self, because I guess he was a pretty, you know, laid-back, sweet guy. Uh, but he would uh, reproduce this weakness in his characters, uh, and would keep that would keep him afloat on screen throughout the 40s. And, you know, let's not forget uh, Dan Drea. Uh, a Lang favorite, as I mentioned before, who was so sinister and smarmy in this film that the audience just couldn't get enough. He certainly, you know, reaches shitbag status here, uh, but he would continue playing this sort of character throughout the 40s. I mean, he is, you know, the ultimate kind of asshole degenerate guy. I don't know. He's just the worst in the best way. Uh, Joan Bennett is uh, back with Lang here after their collaboration on Manhunt in 1941. Uh, but the woman in the window revamped Bennett's career from you know the young blonde that she once was to the 34-year-old femme fatale that she became. You know, and she's just iconic in this role. She would uh, work with Lang again on Scarlet Street, which you know we'll cover in another installment uh, of this film noir marathon. But she would also make many other films outside of Lang's supervision, such as The Woman on the Beach in 1947, Hollow Triumph in uh, 1948, and Max O'Fool's The Reckless Moment in 1949, which I've seen, but I am going to re-watch uh, for, this, pot, or for this, uh, this kind of uh, movie lesson that we're doing with film noir here. Now, uh, there is one major flaw, in my opinion, that pulls this film down substantially, as I kind of talked about before. It's this goddamn ending. Guys, uh, this was panned by critics then and now, and, you know, I'm certainly on the that sucked side of things. Uh, but, you know, The Woman in the Window is not a bad film, but this ending is sucks so badly that it cut the film's leg out, legs out right from under it. I mean, when you see it, like, you should watch the movie just to see this ending. Because when you see it, you're going to be like, that's it? Uh, <laughs> um it may not be as offensive to you because it just pisses me off that this is how the movie ended. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, you, you should watch this just to see it. As I've already said again, you know, in this in this episode, you know, I always say it's about the journey, not the destination when it comes to noir. But in this case, it makes 
everything meaningless. The end does, in my view. Uh, but you should check it out nonetheless. See for yourself. You know, overall, I liked the film, uh, but there are just certain glaring issues. The biggest and most glaring is that ending. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I would love for you to actually kind of go into it and just see that kind of twist for yourself. I, I appreciate the stones that Lang had to have to try to pull off that ending. I won't lie. Um, but yeah, it just not for me. I gave this film a three out of five. Uh, this is a better film than that, but that ending really just tears the legs out from under it, as I said. And, uh, yeah, so three out of five and let's move on to the last film in this installment. The last film is Murder My Sweet from 1944, directed by Edward Dimitrik. Um, it's written by John Paxton. It's an adaptation of Farewell, My Lovely by Raymond Chandler, a name that we've also discussed, uh, you know, uh, just in this episode alone. It was uh, made by RKO Pictures. That was the studio, and it stars Dick Powell, Claire Trevor, and Anne Shirley. Uh, it premiered December 9th, 1944. And this is the last film that I'm going to be covering in this kind of uh, marathon of sorts. Uh, that is before the end of World War II. Every other one is after that. So that's where, you know, we're doing the World War II era stuff. So this is a good one to end on. The film follows gumshoe Philip Marlowe. And if that name sounds familiar, it has been used many times because it was Chandler's kind of go-to detective. Uh, and we see that in, you know, the 70s, Farewell, My Lovely, starring uh, Robert Mitchum. And we see it in The Big Sleep, which we'll talk about in another installment. We see it in uh, this film, of course. We see it in The Long Goodbye uh, in this, from 1973, uh, a Robert Altman film. Anyways, uh, this is a recurring kind of character that you see a lot of people do. And, and, and though a lot of people you know, will say Humphrey Bogart is Philip Marlowe, I really love this film, actually. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there when we talk about The Big Sleep. Nonetheless, Gumshoe Philip Marlowe is hired by an oafish Moose Malloy uh, to track down his former girlfriend. He's also hired to accompany an effeminate playboy while he buys back some jewels. Uh, you know, when, when the exchange results in the playboy's murder, Marlowe can't leave the case alone and soon discovers it's related to Malloy's case as he gets drawn deeper and deeper into the complex web of intrigue by a mysterious blonde, the dreaded femme fatale, the detective finds his own life in increasing jeopardy. Now, there's this line by Dick Powell as Philip Marlowe in the movie, and he says, She was a charming middle-aged lady with a face like a bucket of mud. I gave her a drink. She was a gal who'd take a drink if she had to knock you down to get the bottle. I mean, with dialogue like that, man... <laughs> This is my kind of genre noir, okay? <laughs> uh, concentrated gumshoe dialogue, wisecracking detective, a swirl of twists and plot pivots, you know, beautiful black and white photography by Harry J. Wilde, uh, and uh, wonderful direction by Edward Dimitrik. I particularly love the visualized hallucination effects that happen in the film, which I'll talk about here in a moment. Uh, you know, the the black puddle that, you know, seems to close around Marlowe, you know, as he blacks out if he's been knocked out or something, you know, or, or the, the webs that he sees when he wakes up from being knocked out or when he's messed up in some way, you know, it's just really great. There are all these little visual techniques that are cool. And, and Dick Powell is fluent in hard-boiled sarcasm, okay? Uh, great choice for Marlowe. I really love him. Again, you know, this is the first... 
uh, Philip Marlowe story in the marathon. And, you know, I'm excited to revisit The Big Sleep and Lady in the Lake to see, uh, you know, more Marlowe in action, both of which played by different people, uh, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart and Robert Montgomery, respectively. And, you know, when I when I took that film noir class that I've mentioned uh, in college, Murder, My Sweet was one of my favorites of all of them. You know, and it is still a pure-cut diamond of a movie. Like Double Indemnity, this film involves Raymond Chandler, but instead of being the screenwriter, he wrote the source material, Farewell, My Lovely. And uh, not only was Chandler bitter at Wilder for, you know, not extending him the credit he deserves uh, for um, Double Indemnity, uh, Chandler generally hated the movie business, you know. And uh, and he and Hollywood just didn't have, they never really clicked. And Hollywood had butchered, if you think about it, you know, they'd butchered a lot of Chandler's stories. Not so much that the films were bad, because I love a lot of the Chandler adaptations, uh, but they changed everything enough that it really wasn't recognizable as a Chandler work, per se. You know, they would often change out Philip Marlowe, you know, which was Chandler's go-to pride and joy detective, you know, and they would use some other character that they created, you know, often just borrowing from Chandler's stories. But Chandler was Philip Marlowe. And you don't get Chandler without that protagonist. So here we are, Murder My Sweet, showcasing the wisecracking, humorous, cynical, private eye, Philip Marlowe. Studio boss Charles Kerner uh, liked Chandler in his novels and gave his work another chance, especially since RKO already owned the rights to Farewell My Lovely. So, you know, he brought on director Edward Dimitrik, Edward Dimitrik, sorry, and uh, they started moving forward on the project. Now, the visual style by Dimitrik harkens back to something like Orson Welles' Citizen Kane or something. Not on that scale, of course. I mean, it, it's it's not even remotely close to being that impressive. But, uh, you know, uh, the visual flourishes that happen in Murder, My Sweet, um, you know, they, they are reminiscent of some things in Citizen Kane. Some of those visual flourishes, you know, they contribute to the visual storytelling uh, here in Murder, My Sweet. So... You know, funny enough, uh, just a side note, Kerner uh, was actually the man who fired Orson Welles from RKO those years back, uh, championing the motto showmanship instead of genius. Uh, but that's another story for another time. But Kerner all, also saved the career of Claire Trevor. Uh, she was a star in the 1930s, showing up in films like Dead End and Stagecoach, the uh, really famous and early John Ford, John Wayne collaboration, uh, but only receiving kind of lower bill parts. And uh, outside of these notable films, she was mostly known for forgettable westerns. So here she is, revitalized as the wicked femme fatale that she is here, you know. And uh, she even collaborated with costume designer Edward Stevenson to create her notable outfits, creating the signature kind of look and vibe she would have in later noirs. Now, known for his song and dance pictures prior, Dick Powell actually gunned for the role of Walter Neff uh, the role in Double Indemnity that would, you know, go to Fred McMurray. So he, you know, uh, Powell thought that he could have played that role just as well as McMurray, and it would have opened up many more doors for him as a lead player. But uh, even the filmmakers behind Murder, My Sweet wanted someone that looked tougher than Powell, you know, uh, more grizzled, more warm, 
And Powell was not that. But Coroner uh, made Dimitrik and company uh, have get screen tests made with Powell. And Coroner offered, offered rather Powell the job following that test because apparently, you know, he just fit. And this really changed Powell's career forever for the rest of his time, you know, performing. Producer Adrian Scott needed a screenwriter to bring Chandler's book to life. So he, you know, bet on a rookie uh, that he'd worked with before on one other project. But, he, you know, he got this rookie with one forgettable credit to his name. And that writer was John Paxton. And, you know, working on the adaptation, he somewhat streamlined some of the plot threads that Chandler had, you know, created in the book. And he maintained you know, the banter and added some of his own and, and kept the characters in kind of like this gray space, which is one of the best parts about film noir is the whole thing's a gray area. You know, I mean, sometimes they'll do the ultimate good, ultimate bad thing, but the best noirs are the ones that don't tell you how to think. They just are. So anyways, you know, he uh, Paxton kept all these characters kind of in this gray space, you know, and, and moving the story along at a quick pace. Not too quick, but just a good quick pace. Unfortunately, the production code was awful, and uh, the filmmakers had to mask the fact that the character Lindsay Marriott is gay. Also, Jules Amthor, uh, one of the characters in the movie, also is pushing drugs to elites in the L- in L.A. So, I mean, we're talking about drug pushers and, and gay men. I mean, these were just a few things that made, you know, that made it into the film, but only bar- barely. You know, they were they had to be done with such care and such sleight of hand to get past the dreaded production code. I hate that fucking thing. Uh, it's really fun to learn about, but it just sucks. So uh, many things, you know, were taken out of the film that were in the book, unfortunately. I mean, you can't always fit everything in the book in a movie, but, you know, Paxton Paxton just couldn't get everything, but I feel like he did a pretty damn good job at getting this movie off the ground. Uh, Anyway, Murder My Sweet is an absolute gem that you definitely have to see. This is way up on my list uh, so far. So uh, this movie is a uh, four out of five. I don't really think it deserves more, but man, I've seen this movie multiple times and it's fun every time. This is just an entertaining film noir doing some really interesting stuff. Again, not perfect, but man, it is definitely worth seeing. So that concludes our World War II era film noir kind of talk. Of course, there are tons and tons more film noirs that I could have talked about. Uh, But these are, I think, many of the really notable ones, whether they are notable by their producers or their filmmakers or just as films themselves. I think this is a pretty good list to start with for this first installment of this medium cool movie lesson uh, on film noir. So, you know, later, many of the... Uh, Later, like post-war, many film noir titles would be considered threats to society uh, for their depictions of crime and cynicism and all those things. And we're going to tackle all of those things in another installment. Uh, And I don't know when it's going to come out, but I will definitely do it because I love noir and I want to share that with you. So for now... Uh, you know, I'm going to get out of here um, and, you know, I'll give myself some time and I'll make a little outro for you guys. But you guys hang in there. Thanks for listening. Hey, how was that? That wasn't terrible, right? I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time on this thing. Like so much. It's stupid time. Like I just wanted to do the research myself. Like, I just wanted to, like, learn more about these noir movies. You know, I'd taken that class as a senior in college, but it was like, I mean, that was years ago. So it's like, you know, 
you know, I just I wanted to kind of like revisit some of these movies and dig deeper into a lot of them, and it was just really fun for me personally. I just had a great time, uh, but I hope you had a great time listening to it as well. I know that usually I have a guest, and I know that uh, like having uh, you know uh, a, a co-host to kind of work with you and to play off of is is really helpful and fun. Uh, but hopefully you were cool with this kind of solo approach that I took uh, for this one. And uh, yeah, so uh, again, hit us up on social media, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of this format. Again, I don't plan to do a lot of things like this, but on occasion, I may do some kind of movie lessons like this. And uh, uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. And we kept this under an hour and a half. So I feel like as a solo endeavor, less than an hour and a half is good business there. So I don't know. But anyways, I just really want to thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks, 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 thanks. And uh, I don't know. I love you guys. Uh, Good night. Good luck. Take it easy.